Good morning. Um, I don't know if some of you guys are aware of this, but we live in a crazy world today. Um, we live in a pretty crazy world where we are constantly bombarded by all kinds of information on Christianity and, and spirituality. Um, there's actually thousands of church or spiritual leaders who are constantly sharing their beliefs and their spiritual insights on all kinds of social media, whether it's Twitter feeds or YouTube channels, websites, blogs, all kinds of places. In fact, if you wanted to, you could listen to all kinds of sermons throughout the week. You could read all kinds of books that are readily accessible to you from these leaders. In fact, I mean, just as the major European movements, the Protestant Reformation, which looked to reform the Roman Catholic Church, was ushered in by the printing press in the 16th century, which made accessible Bible interpretations that were widely spread. The internet for us today multiplies the interpretation of religion. And, and it's even brought about a birth of, of new beliefs and new religion. And, and so what, what we're in, the modern age of technology and internet has really brought about a phenomena in our culture. I mean, with our many devices like my iPhone, I could just quickly survey many different biblical interpretations on all kinds of passages in the Bible. Or I could check out different Christian viewpoints on the most relevant hot topic of our day. I've had people text me links to websites or blogs and say, hey, can you check this out? Like, this is a kind of nuanced, different Christian perspective on this. Could you, could you look at this? I've had people do that. And really, we, we have a much more autonomous role in deciding whom to approach as our authority on Christianity and spiritual matters. And the passage that we're actually going to look at today brings about a very important question we all should consider in light of the barrage of information we have on Christianity and spiritual matters. And that question is, what voices are you listening to? And, and what impact do they have on your life? As Titus has been telling us through our letter, that our, we live out what we believe. We live out what we believe. And so, what is shaping your belief system in light of the voices that you're listening to, and how is that spilling out in your life? Because the bottom line for us today that we're going to cover is false teaching will ruin your life, but the gospel will bring and give you true life. And I actually just want to say this too, in light of what I feel like the Spirit's been doing today, great leadership, A, by the way, like, I hope we're all here ready to expect Jesus' presence and power to release us this morning. I really believe that. There's some of us, I think, we're maybe even in bondage to some of the things that we might not even be aware of because we're just so used to it. And uh, I believe the Spirit wants to free you up this morning and introduce you to the real Jesus who is way more real and way more personal and way more powerful than you've ever experienced. And so I just, I'm, I'm expecting that. I, I want to invite you into that expectation with me. Um, so if you turn to Titus 1, uh, 10 through 16. We're going to look at Titus chapter 1, 10 through 16. If you take out your Bibles or your phone app and, and, and turn there, swipe there. I'll read that. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. It says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. 
Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the, to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul starts off by telling us who these false teachers are. Paul says that the false teachers are those from the circumcision party, and he also says they devote themselves to Jewish myths. These are Jews born and raised in Crete who profess Christianity, and yet they try to mix in a religious mindset within the Christian belief. They, they taught that, in, you know, in order to really be a follower of Jesus, to be pure and right before him, to be a true believer in Jesus, you need to be circumcised, and you need to participate in some religious activities. And so, essentially, false teachers are those who proclaim to know the gospel, but yet they distort the gospel by adding or subtracting from it. And they do it to the degree where the gospel really isn't the gospel anymore. And I, I want to share actually a short list of some in our day so we have a better grasp in our mind what some false teaching false, and what false teachers are that we engage or encounter. But a quick side note before I go into that list, what's very important to realize is that theological disagreement does not always equal false teaching. Does that make sense? So there are several things we might disagree with another brother or sister that are godly leaders, super mature, and we wouldn't categorize them or lump them in the category of false teachers, okay? Again, false teachers are those who distort the good news, the gospel, the good news about Jesus to the degree it's not really the gospel anymore. So in our day, there are Jehovah's Witnesses, there's Mormons, uh, Christian scientists. I talked about those a few weeks back. These guys would claim to believe and, uh, and teach the gospel, yet core things like the fact that Jesus just isn't fully man, but he's also fully God, they would deny that. They would also deny that God is Trinity, that God is Father, that God is Spirit, that God is Son. They would deny that truth. And they're preaching and teaching uh, this truth throughout Tacoma and actually impacting the world with it. Um, it's also becoming popular to believe a universalism gospel that says one day everyone will be saved. There is no hell. No one will be separated from God's presence from eternity. Actually, a really popular example that promotes this teaching is Rob Bell in his book, uh, Love Wins. Some of you guys might be familiar with that. But the gospel is good news because it saves us from something very, very horrible, being unreconciled to God for eternity. And it saves us to something very, very amazing, being reconciled and at one and at peace and united to God forever. The gospel is about a father who desires to bring his orphan kids back to his home, back into a right relationship with him. And he does it to the point of giving his very own son so that his orphan kids will be brought home. And only some choose to receive and accept that love and forgiveness while many deny it and reject it. That's part of the gospel. There's also a legalistic gospel, which we'll talk about more later on in light of the passage that we're in. But here the gospel is more about following rituals than having a genuine relationship with Jesus. And this is basically the mentality that says, I have to earn my relationship with God. I have to prove myself to God. And also there are those who teach a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Here the gospel is really about trusting God in order to get uh, material prosperity in your life. 
If you trust him just enough, he will bless you with worldly comfort and possessions. And this message is really impacting all over the world, especially certain regions in our world. And to be honest with you, I, I think it actually impacts most of the church in America. And what I mean by here is even us who would reject it outright like I would. And I believe that's the case because, like me, I think many of us are so prone to see, to think that pain and discomfort is bad and evil at all costs, no matter what. For example, because I, I, I think I can trick myself quite a bit unless things go wrong in my life. When things go wrong in my life, it te- this false gospel belief tends to come up. For example, when I run out of money, right, and I hit a road and I, it's struggling to meet, make ends meet, or I'm sick for a long period of time, I'm struggling with some serious unhealth for an extended period of time, or I fail in my job performance, or I don't get the job that I think I should get or that I hoped I'd get, or I just look at my life and I compare it to others, and it's, I don't, I just, I'm not happy with my life and where I'm at. And in these situations, I can find myself angry and bitter, and even bitter towards God. And and my life tends to be characterized by a lot of grumbling and a lot of complaining about, it seems like, everything. Everything just sucks. I don't know if you've ever been there. Everything is just like, yeah, it's it's a complaint. And in the reality, I'm believing a gospel that isn't true. The good news really isn't good enough because I feel like I'm entitled to get this certain thing I feel like I have to have right now. However, in the present life, the gospel, it doesn't promise us, we've got to remind ourselves of this, it doesn't promise us a comfortable life. It doesn't actually promise us a job. It doesn't promise us perfect health. It doesn't promise us lots of money. The gospel, it doesn't promise us a non-messy, optimal lifestyle. We are promised eternal life, relationship with them now and forever, which, by the way, just as a side note, as we've been singing and talking about, that's the best thing ever. The Bible says because of our sin and rejection of God, we deserve separation from him for eternity, forever. But by God's grace that he would give his own son so that he would deal with our debt that we owe against him so that we would draw close to him and that that would be a forever kind of thing. Like the Romans 8 says, nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That the greatest safety and protection and comfort and peace we could ever have is being one with God, and we have it through Jesus. And when I think about that, and I compare that to any suffering I may may encounter, even death itself, and that even death can't separate me from God, but actually brings me more in the presence of God, it's like, wow, that's amazing. Like, suffering, what? Should we have Jesus? Now, I want to say this to be really, really clear. God cares about our pain and suffering we go through. Pain and suffering is real. It's legit. It, it really is painful. And God is compassionate towards us in that. In fact, we get to pray to him to deliver us from suffering. We get to pray for healing when we're sick. But what the point I'm trying to make here is the gospel calls us to suffering. In fact, the Bible says that we identify as followers of Jesus with the sufferings of Christ in his death so that the life of Christ might work through us. The Bible also says that Jesus says we are to take up our cross daily, sacrifice daily for his name's sake, that we are to actually find it and count it joy when we suffer for the name of Jesus. That's part of the gospel. We're called to suffer. We can't miss that. 
So my question here is, have you guys ever seen this in your life? Where maybe you try to add to the work of Jesus, or you've tried to subtract from the work of Jesus, whether you've said, man, I know he loves me, but I feel like there's a little bit more I got to do to really feel that love. Or, man, I I don't really feel like I need him too much. I'm I'm a pretty good person. Or it, it might be like, yeah, I know he loves me, but man, my life, it's just not fair right now. I feel like I just got handed a raw deal. Like, this isn't fair. I need something else. Have you ever seen that in your life pop up? Anywhere in our life where there's evidence that we were making life in a way about our ability to personally transform ourselves or we look to something to transform ourselves other than Jesus, that's a false gospel. That's a false gospel. Does that make sense? Now that we're familiar by what we mean by false teachers and teachings, let's talk about how we might identify false teachers. Paul highlights certain characteristics that can help us identify false teachers. He says they are insubordinate, which means rebellious. It's refusing to submit to any authority, and in this context, especially godly spiritual authority. Submission, it's actually an important theme in the letter. Throughout it, Paul keeps calling the churches in Crete to take the submissive posture, and he's doing that because in their culture right there, especially with these false teachers, there's an unsubmissive kind of culture going on. They don't want to submit. In our Northwest culture, there is a common held belief that Submitting to authority is bad, and that the highest goal is independence. I don't know if you've ever ran into some of that, but for example, you might see it in how some view the education system, or you might see it in how some people view work in the workplace. But refusing to submit to any authority is actually antithetical to the gospel. The gospel, it actually brings us into a kingdom, as we've been, as Brittany was sharing, and as we talked about a few weeks ago, where Jesus is the reigning ruling king. But the good news about him being the reigning ruling king is he's not domineering, and he's not abdicating, but he's the servant leader king. He's, he's the perfect example of actually submission. He doesn't grasp and hold on to the quality he has with his dad, but he chooses to submit to his dad by humbling himself, and the Son of God taking on flesh, and he humbles himself to the point of dying for the world because he's submitting and obeying his dad, but he's also the perfect example of a leader to us. He's not a king who comes and looks to take like many kings in our day do. And he rightfully actually could do that, but he doesn't. He comes and he didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. And he serves ultimately by sacrificing his own life in our place. That's the kind of king he is. And he makes us into a people that look joyfully to submit to him. And then as a church to submit to one another and submit to leaders because our king has made it that way. So our question is, who are you listening to? Be careful not to submit to those who won't gladly submit to others. It's becoming increasingly popular to do independent ministry through blogs and web training and podcasts and books and even television. An important question to ask is, who are, who are they actually submitted to? Who are these people submitted to? And I'm not talking about from a distance where there's like a phone or Skype check-in every once in a while. For example, we just sent out Dawson and Laurel Jones to Slovakia. Um, and and the, uh, they joined a church out there, and the, and the hope is that they would also plant a church out there one day. And I'm doing Skype check-ins with him, but myself and the elders and their old missional community are no longer the primary people who they're submitted to. And the reason why is we're not living life with them. The primary people they're submitted to are in Nitra, Slovakia, the leaders there. They're living life with him. That's who they're primarily submitted to. So the question, are the leaders you listen to 
submitting their daily life to other godly leaders that they are living life with. And I, and I, I, I humbly offer this to you. If not, I'd, I'd encourage you not to listen to them. I'd encourage you not to listen to them. They seriously lost credibility in that. Paul also characterizes, as he moves on, the false teachers as empty talkers and deceivers. These are idle talkers who essentially utter empty, senseless things. They might be able to communicate well, maybe even have impressive speech. However, their speech, it never accomplishes anything constructive or for building up. It's the kind of person, actually, Paul mentions later on in his letter in Titus 3, 9 through 10. You can read that later. But their speech, basically, it leads to division and tearing down of others. And again, false teaching, it ruins life. That's what Paul's trying to get across. Paul says that in the church, though, speech should look different. Ephesians 4.15, he actually says this, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who's the head, into Christ. The gospel, the, the good news about the grace of Jesus is actually supposed to get into our mind and our hearts where it comes out of our mouth, and it's the basis by which we talk to each other. And that, the power of the gospel, which is amazing through us and through our words, is to build up the body of Christ, to maturity. Because the gospel brings life. The gospel brings true life. So who are you listening to? People who look to build themselves up or others up? People who talk well of the church, the beautiful bride of Christ that Jesus laid down his life for, or those who look to tear down the bride and talk ill of her? Is it clear their goal to love others that, that their goal is to love others, or does it seem like they're just trying to win an argument and, and be right? Paul, moving along, also highlights that their motivation is one of shameful gain, or you can say dishonest gain. And this most likely means money, but also could include desiring to gain a following for oneself. So who are you listening to in that regard? Someone who's out to promote themselves, or someone who's out to promote the advancement of Jesus' kingdom? Are they more concerned with marketing their own stuff and making the most money possible? Or are they more serious about serving others, partnering with others, seeing disciples being made, and the gospel going forth? Lastly, Paul shows us that we should pay attention to the fruit produced by false teaching, which can help us identify false teachers. Paul says in verse 11 that false teachers are upsetting whole families. The word upset here means to overthrow, subvert, corrupt, or destroy. Paul isn't merely referring to family in the nuclear family sense, like we might understand that today, but he's actually speaking about house churches. He's speaking about homes. He's speaking about the church and how the church is being corrupted and destroyed. And so submitting to the influence of false teaching, it ruins the life of the church. And Paul goes actually deeper to make this point in verse 12 when he says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And then he says that that testimony is true and therefore rebuke them. And so what is he saying here? Paul is actually making the contrast between the Cretan culture and the nature of God very, very clear. The falsehood that plagues the Cretan culture is opposite to the God who never lies. Paul makes that statement just earlier in that chapter. And the point Paul is getting across is that these false teachers and those influenced by them, though they claim to follow Jesus, really don't look much different than the day-to-day -day life of the Cretan culture. 
other than following a few rules. There's not much difference. Let me just give you an example maybe that might connect with us more. Like one attends a, a church service on Sunday morning while another is waking up from a hangover because they just had a great party the night before and they partied too hard. And looking at the person with the hangover on Sunday morning, we could easily assume that person, far from God, totally worldly mindset. While the other person that's at the gathering and worshiping at the service, like, wow, totally close to God, follower of Jesus, this, this guy's on it. But here's the deal, and I think this is what Paul's trying to get across. The reality is, is if you really look into their day-to-day life, if you really follow them throughout the week, they'd be about the same. They wouldn't look much different from each other. And that's why Paul says in verse 16, the false teachers, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And then Paul says they're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good works, super strong language, man. Like, wow. Paul's saying he's disgusted by the gross hypocrisy. That's what he's saying. These false teachers are claiming to be fully informed by God, like me and God are tight. That's what they're saying. But yet their life completely contradicts that truth. And it grieves me when when I meet people in Tacoma, uh, and I hear stories of how they've been greatly impacted by the false gospel representation from church leaders. Uh, When when I got my most recent tattoo um, of several months ago, I was getting to know the tattoo artist, who's a great guy. Super enjoyed just getting to know this guy. We were talking forever. It was awesome. Probably took, made the, the session that much longer, but we had a great time. And anyways, as I was getting to know him, I uh, asked him what he thought about Jesus in the church. And he shared this heartbreaking story about his dad, who was a pastor, and how he saw, you know, growing up, you know, his, guy, his dad really living two different lives. Like, in the church setting, he was a rock star, loved a lot of people, preached, you know, the gospel, and just people loved him. But in the home, throughout the week, it just broke my heart hearing the, 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 the abuse that took place, the control, the domineering. It, it was just massive. It broke my heart as I heard him. And, and that is a distortion of the gospel. That's a false gospel that he's seeing in a real way. And, and I, I wonder if some of you, I wouldn't doubt that some of you are here and you've experienced some of that to some degree. And I want to tell you, just like I told my friend who was working on my arm, that that's not Jesus. That's not who he is. That's not how he wields his authority. He doesn't dominate. He serves. And he's here to want to heal you and love you and introduce himself to you way differently than any distortion you've ever heard and bring new life to you. I I pray you hear that this morning. Jesus is good. He's a good king. He lays down his life for you. He protects the sheep. He leads the sheep into pastures and besides still waters. He comforts and he blesses. He provides the security we all long for. That's who he is. And there's hope in him today. So who are you listening to? Those leaders who practice what they preach by pointing others to Jesus in their everyday life and they allow their life to be seen by the church in everyday life? Or those who hide their lives from community and their daily life isn't being seen by the church? This is why Paul says to silence the false teachers. Literally, he means to shut them up. (laughs) And, And he also says to rebuke them. Here he's mainly thinking of those being influenced 
by teachers. And what he's essentially saying by rebuke is we're to effectively be ready to show the error of the teaching and, and show the truth in its place. And just something I want to say that's important, we have to base that on the word of God. Anytime we bring any corrections based on the word of God, and we do it with a spirit of humility, gentleness, and a discernment from the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26 is a great example of that. Paul says that in verse 13, the goal of that correction action, corrective action, is so that they may be found, excuse me, so that they may be sound in the faith. And the word translated sound means healthy. Sound doctrine is another important theme in Titus. And for the churches in Crete to grow in spiritual health, he's saying they must be grounded in the truth of the gospel because he wants to silence false teachers and rebuke gospel distortions because the gospel is the only thing that can bring truth, life, and health. And while the false teachers and false teaching will ruin life if we give into it. So we're going to conclude our passage by clarifying how really does false teaching ruin one's life. Because this is where I feel like Paul gets us into uh, verse 15 when he says, Paul says, at the core of their being, these false teachers are defiled and unbelieving. Their minds and their consciences are defiled. And these guys, they have this religious mindset they're ascetics, which causes them to push away food and, and, and drink and anything else that they might think they got to get out of their life in order to prove their worth to God. And they see, really, the ultimate issue is being external, outside of them. And they believe transformation can happen by managing their external world, by don't touch and don't eat and don't do that. And the problem with that is the Bible says transformation, it actually must start inside of us, inside of us because our hearts are what's defiled. And Jesus actually says it like this when he's talking to a group of religiously minded leaders in his day who were trying to get cleansing, who were trying to promote cleansing rituals as, uh, during mealtime as a way to gain approval with God. He says this in Matthew 15 and verses 11, 18, and 20. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, Adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So the more important question I feel like Jesus brings us to isn't what are the best religious practices, but what is the motivation of your heart? Because really, not ultimately, it's not ultimately about whether or not you follow rules and rituals. That's not what it's about. Like, the solution isn't, I must stay away from trying to stay away from things. Does that make sense? Like, that's not it. We're, just, we're stuck in the same, with the same problem. The reality is, is religious activity or rituals can either be used in a destructive way or in a life-giving way. And the difference is, it's the basis of our motivation. What's our motivation? Are things done in your life in response to your relationship with, with Jesus to grow in deeper intimacy with him? Or is it to prove yourself to him, to earn something from him? And here's the deal. In order to have a godly motivation, we actually need a brand new, undefiled heart. We need a brand new, undefiled heart. Rituals in and of themselves, that's why they have no effective power to change the motivation of our heart. And, and can't really truly transform us from within. That's why Paul says this in Colossians 2.23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You see, Paul is saying that doing rituals, it doesn't really deal with the desire we have deep within us 
to try to earn God's love, to try and prove ourselves. My life matters. i got to prove that, to make up for my mistakes, to make up for my failures, to make up for my sin. And if we're honest, we, we all stumble into that belief, don't we? Like, our hearts are so prone to say, I will make up for my sin. I will make up for my life. I will prove myself. Have you ever said that? Have you ever sat with that? Do I say that at a heart level? Do I? Are, are there times you've told yourself that you have to earn God's acceptance and approval through what you do or don't do? In other words, like, what, what's your cleansing ritual? That's really what we're asking. What is our cleansing rituals? And maybe for you, it might sometimes be fasting. Fasting from food or drink or other things. And in your heart, you say, man, if I, if I do this, then I'll prove my worth to God finally. Maybe it might be giving money. Some of you might look at, like, your history in your life, like, I made such a mess of my life. I've been such a screw-up. Man, if I just give enough money, if I just give enough money to the church, if I just give enough money to the poor, then, just then, maybe God might be satisfied with me. Maybe then God might be pleased with me. Have you ever done that? Or, or maybe uh, in your Bible reading times and silence and solitude and prayer, um, it, when, sometimes it, it happens when you do that, you feel God's close to you. And when you don't do it, you feel like he's distanced from you. Or maybe it's sharing Jesus with others. I know for me, I've been, when I go through a few days and I'm sharing Jesus with others, I just have a good mood about God and what he thinks about me. And when I go through several days and I'm not doing that, which happens often, I go several days without sharing Jesus with people, I can tend to suddenly start feeling like, man, like, where's God? I don't know if he really likes me right now. What, what do I got to change with me? Is he, is he still really pleased with me? Have you ever struggled with that? Or, or maybe a cleansing ritual could be like when you sin and you're in the midst of your sin and your muck and it's staring you in the face, your cleansing ritual might be just guilt-ridden beating yourself up. And you've got to do that for a period of time in order to then you might isolate yourself from community. You might hide because you feel ashamed about your sin and you want a period of time. So then maybe you might cleanse yourself through that time and then you come back in like, maybe God... I don't know if that's any of you. And, and something I want to make clear, some of the stuff we're saying is legit, like reading your Bible, praying is to repentance and faith. So those are good. We, 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 got, we, got, to, we got to operate in those. Are they, to the, do we engage those because our desire, and we see the poison, because belief in the gospel was never meant to ultimately be about rituals. It's about sense to beat ourselves up. It makes no sense to hide. Because while you were yet in the muck and mire with you. And so to act like he's far off in a distant father gave his son to die for our sins. That means our sins are put on him in the midst of our brokenness. That Jesus entered into that place with us so that he would look, love you. I'm for you. I am here to forgive you. I am here to heal you. I am here to be your savior and your hope. You know what he wants to do with those rituals? Like trying to do the Christian life? And trying to just like put up being a Christian or doing Christian things. You. He wants you. He wants to pour out himself in you. He wants you. changes you. And you're like, wow, Jesus is more real than anything in my entire Do you want that? He wants to pour himself out into you today, this morning. I complain. Man, I grumble. Man, I really struggle with enjoying this, this situation by pulling yourself by the bootstraps. Guess what you get to do? Jesus, I am better than those things. Just come to me. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened. Anything this world has to offer. And he's here to give you that. So receive that by the Spirit's power. 
And maybe you came here and you thought, man, Jesus, is he really God? And the guy really is God. This is some crazy stuff. Well, guess what he is? And he wants to tell you that. He wants to introduce himself to you as the living God of your life. And he brought you here because he wants you to meet him, because he wants to change your life, because he wants to make his name famous through you and, and show you what true life really is. Or maybe some of you might be here and you might like, you know what? I, life is about just living a good life. I've been thinking that, you know, when I first walked in here, but man, I'm kind of feeling convicted that I don't know if it's just trying to live a good life. Maybe my life that I try to live good isn't enough. And I want to tell you, it's not enough. It isn't enough. And Jesus is convicting you, telling you it's not enough. And the reason why he's convicting you it's not enough is because he wants you. He wants relationship with you. He wants you to show you what is enough. It's him and what he's done for you and the forgiveness that he's offered you at the cross. Don't take on the rituals of this world and think you're going to prove yourself anymore. It leads to death. Jesus leads to life. So here's what we're going to do. It's 1120. I didn't, he wants to minister to us with his power and presence today. So I would love for Brittany, I would love for you to come up here and lead us in music. I'd love for everybody to stand up. And I just, um, Brittany's going to lead us. I want to create just a little bit of space where we're just listening, getting with Jesus, getting cozy with Jesus. A bit of time we have together. Because I believe he wants, when we get convicted, we can miss that. And God's gracious in that, but, but why would we want to miss that? Let's be intentional and engage him in this right now. And so if you, if you're here to encounter Jesus, not just listen to people talk, right? Jesus is wanting to minister to you. There's nothing better than that. There are those rituals I need to give up so I can really enjoy your real relationship with you. Or any one of those things I said. Receive that. Talk to him about it. Also, I'd love for pray, people that are ready to pray, Abe, all you guys, Don, for you guys to kind of just go out uh, on the sides. And if you feel like you want some help in praying through that, just go out to any one of them and they'll pray for you. But what we're going to do for just several minutes here is just allow the Spirit to work. You can talk to God or you can go to someone and pray with someone or receive prayer from someone. So we're going to do that for a little bit and then we'll come back and do a couple of songs and take communion. So Holy Spirit, I just pray right now, would you pour out? Would you bring a comfortability in the room that we are all, apart from you, Jesus, we're sinners and we need your grace. We need your grace. We're all at the same level playing field and we're here to be changed by you. That's why we came here this morning. We want to meet with you. We're not here to play church. We're here to be the church, be transformed in your presence and power. So Holy Spirit, would you just remove any distractions right now? And would you just come and bring sweet conviction would you bring intimacy right now? Would you pour out your grace? Would you pour out your love? Would you open eyes? Would you open hearts? Would you not let people be afraid to step out? To ask for help and ask for prayer. We're family. We're here to do that. Oh, God, would you keep the enemy's voice? Would you shut that voice up and remove it out? And just allow us to be family, who you've made us to be. So I pray for great freedom to be felt. Would you release hearts? Oh, Holy Spirit, move in the room. Touch every heart. Lead us right now, I pray in your name.